Hello and welcome to episode number five of the Thermal Podcast. Many of you have been in touch saying how much you enjoy the podcast. Please keep spreading the word and if you haven't, please leave a review with your podcast provider. I've also noticed that if you have Google Home, all you have to do is say, Hey Google, play the Thermal Podcast and presto, there it is. On this episode of The Thermal, a look behind the scenes of the 2019 Pan American Gliding Championships and the role of contest director. We speak with Ken Sorensen, who is a well-known American competition pilot in his own right. And Rocky Mountain High. Chester Fitchett tells us about his multiple thousand kilometer wave flights and crossing into American airspace. Chester flies out of the QNM club near Calgary, Alberta, and his flying can be summed up with trim forward and go. Have you ever thought about gliding in Argentina? On our first installment of Glider Club Confidential, we hear from Carlos Ucci about Club de Planuras Azul, located near Buenos Aires. And a quick update on last month's show, I spoke to Jake Brattle, a young British pilot who had just won the World Junior Championships in Hungary. Jake has now been selected to represent Britain at the Worlds. particularly good year for Canadian pilot Chester Fitchett. He's completed multiple flights over 1,000 kilometers this year flying over the mountains of Western Canada in his Arcus M. His flights have even taken him across the border into American airspace. His flights have in theory set new Canadian records for a free out and return and the free three turnpoint distance records. I've reached Chester at his home in Calgary, Alberta. Hello, Chester, and, and welcome to The Thermal. Hi, Harry. Uh, pleased to be on your show. So let's talk about your latest 1,100-kilometer flight. You obviously didn't wake up thinking, I'm going to fly 1,000K today. What goes into planning a flight like this? An individual flight will start with keeping an eye on which way the winds are blowing over the previous week. And i just looking for really strong winds out of the west, off over the mountains. And as the weather forecast gains resolution and it comes in closer, then I look at humidity and make sure that that the humidity will be reasonable so so it's not too dry and I'm gonna have some clouds and but not so humid that that it's all all clouds and I'd be IFR. And then in the last few days I start looking at the specific wave forecasting online tools available like SkySight. And uh, I've just basically getting ready, getting ready to be able to to get down to the club at as early in the morning as makes sense, given the day, which could potentially mean takeoff at before five o'clock in the morning, if it's the middle of summer. There's a fair amount that goes into even just getting up in the morning and, you know, filing flight plans with air traffic control and checking the weather again. And this is a lot of preparation compared to showing up at the club and and going for an 11 a.m thermal flight right right give me a bit of a geography lesson here where do you fly and what are the conditions that you normally fly in so i we i'm always taking off just south of calgary at uh, qnm gliding club it's about 40 minutes from my house which is which is great we have a grass strip out there so just to the west of calgary we have the rocky mountains and the rocky mountains run from i guess in terms of, of wave usefulness they extend from the grand tetons uh, down at the in wyoming 
all the way up to the Northwest Territories border. So it's this incredible amount of rock. And, and typically at QNIM, we're flying in thermals. Thermals are really good for perhaps April, May, and June is usually pretty good, and then it dies off in the summer. But the, the wave is something that can show up just year-round. And and wave is a completely different game than thermals, where you're just you're looking for stable air. And so it's opposite of thermals, where you're looking for unstable air. And, and we're looking for a strong wind out of the west. And usually we're flying just in the lee of the mountains. And you're just flying in this, this wave, this huge bounce in the sky, basically, as the air lands with a thud as it comes down off the mountains and then bounces up again. And, and mostly I'd be flying north-south along, along the mountains. It's, uh, it's, it's great flying. There's extremely little turning. Just <laughs> trim forward and go. Before we get into the, into the details of your, your last flight, talk to me a bit about your glider. It's an ARC-SM. Uh, what's the performance like in this machine, and uh, what's it like to fly? So uh, the ARC-SM, they haven't published an official polar for it, but it's somewhere around 50 to 1, and it has uh, its flapped ship, two-seat self-launching motor glider. comes up all fully loaded up. It'd be close to 800 kilos, 1,700 pounds. And uh, it it's considered by many to be the best two-seater in the world. If you go online on OC on any particular day, half of the best flights in the world will be flown in, in an Arcus. So take me back to this, this particular flight, uh, this last flight of the 1,000-kilometer flight. What were the conditions like that day? And kind of walk me through that, that, uh, that flight. You know, I, I hardly remember. There's just so many, so many of these flights that stack together. I think I had taken off at nine o'clock. In yeah, the morning, I can, which I can is, understand you saying that because you you've had three thousand kilometer flights this year, right, or over a thousand kilometer. Maybe five or six. I kind of stopped stopped counting. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and this particular day, I wasn't ready to take off until about nine a.m. So I I slept in a little bit, and and I could tell from the weather forecast that the wave was not working well north of Calgary. So I had filed the flight plan for heading south and told uh, in my flight plan, told the authorities that I would be heading in the lee of the Rocky Mountains as far down south as Helena, Montana. And, and it was pretty, it, it, was a, it was a pretty slow flying day. Uh, just the wind was, I knew from the weather forecast that the wind was going to swing out of the northwest and it's not great to be down around Great Falls, 50 kilometers south of the border when the wind comes out of the northwest. That, that can be a pretty slow flight home. Uh, but, you know, it was really quite, quite predictable wave day. And, oh, details, details, details. Any, any particular challenges lines. in that flight? Any, any points where you thought, I'm going to have to fire up the engine? Well, so this particular flight, I had, I, I enjoy flying in the mountains more. It looks like there's wave sign out over the mountains, then I will, I, I prefer to fly in the mountains, even though, even if it's a little bit weaker condition, just, it's just more interesting and more scenic. And so as I headed south across the border, you know, the border crossings are really, really straightforward at this point. American air traffic control is used to me and, and they don't, they just, just say hi when I cross the border and I introduce myself and then I tell them what I'm a and, and there's no concern from them at all. 
so I, I headed south over Glacier National Park, and and I was just north of Helena, and I could see that the day was really drying out to the south. So instead of having big puffy wave clouds, there was just a few scraps here and there, and I just continued to push south, and and air goes unstable in wave. Instead of it just being this amazing easy run north and south fast as you can the, the lift starts to move like a thermal does it becomes more more behaving like a thermal and and i was and this was 250 kilometers about 135 nautical miles south of the border and i i went out into the blue and had quite a fight to get back north into like across a big valley so i could continue back to canada what what were to happen and, if you if you landed out in the states? I'm just curious. I mean, I don't think you've got enough range with your orcas to get all the way back to Kunim from where you are. What happens if you land out there? Is it uh, straightforward or or not? No, it's not particularly straightforward. When I fly, I have a list of airports in my computer, so and airstrips and places that I've that I've looked at on the ground, and I'd be happy landing in there if the engine fails. And I, I would always try to light the engine, and things weren't working out you know i would make it make an attempt on ridge lift and if that doesn't work then position myself over someplace and start the engine and assuming the engine didn't work then i would let air air traffic control know down there and somebody from uh like there's one customs guy who works in helena he would have to come out there and clear me into the united states and they don't really like that this unannounced landing in in the country because customs is responsible for keeping keeping people out and you know you're supposed to be pre-approved to yeah, land homeland security kind of keeps an eye out for this sort of stuff i i yeah i would be worried yes yeah, so it's it's theoretically a five thousand dollar fine and i've spoken to to the customs officer in helena on the phone and i've spoken to a supervisor and you know if have an emergency they would prefer to just treat it as an emergency and they would come out there and check out the plane and stamp my passport and there's not really any guarantee that I'm not going to get a big fine if I land out there but as long as the engine starts it's it would be straightforward for me even if the wind is too strong for me to fly straight north back up to QNM it would be pretty easy for me to make Milk River or you know to head down and toward the border but what kind of range uh, does the so, Arcus have with the engine on with the engine on, well, you would be doing this sawtooth profile where you, you start the engine and climb up and then turn it off and put it away. And with downwind, with a downwind flight, I guess if I was just heading in dead air, I would say I could probably make about 500 kilometers on the engine. And, and if I was downwind, I, it would be more than that. It's yeah. really an incredible distance you could run. That, that's pretty good. That's great. Mm -hmm. what, one of the things I think about sometimes, you know, I, I've never flown a motor glider, but does it give you a whole different mindset knowing that you've got that in the back? Are you willing to do more things, go further, knowing that you've got this safety engine in the back, so to speak? Absolutely. I, I went through in my previous motor glider, I went through a you know dumb phase where 
person would get low and and start the engine over over the trees or over clearly unlandable terrain. And this happened several times until you know, I realized this was just happening too often. And and then I switched to this model where I have places pre-identified in the computer and then I'm as my glide slope starts getting unreasonable to my nearest field, then I have to start flying toward that field. And since I've got the Arcus, I've never had a relight over where I wasn't over a place that I was happy to land. But if I didn't have an engine, it would be just such an inconvenience a lot of the time to go and derig the airplane and get it back home that I, I'm sure I would fly less aggressive just just factoring the inconvenience of, of landing out. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Absolutely. I and just just knowing that you've got that engine that you can fire up and not have to call up the crew to come and get you. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get back to one of these these fabulous flights that you're doing north south into into Montana and you're heading north on, on this this last flight. Give me an idea of what the view is like outside of the cockpit window. I can't imagine how uh, how nice it is. Most of the flight is up at 15, 18,000 feet. So there's just hours and hours of just looking at the mountains go by and looking at all these clouds and it's gorgeous sounds fabulous i'm jealous i I need to uh, get out there and try and do some wave flying listen when you're getting above 12.5 and you've called up atc how cooperative are they does it uh, is it a good relationship that you have it is a good relationship i think one thing that does help is that i have the transponder i mean if you don't have a transponder you just can't play at all. Mm-hmm. They really don't want you. They don't yep. want you there. And I, I have a lot of respect for for the job they're trying to do. And and you can see, well, including my glider, you can see all the flights online with transponders, and you can see all the glider or the regular jets heading into Calgary and heading into Edmonton. So so I spend a fair amount of time looking and watching and thinking about the job they're doing to make sure that I don't ask for things that are unreasonable. Right. So I guess the more you do this, the more normalized it becomes with the authorities. That's right. But now, now when, when I go down to the United States, they just know that there's this Canuck who flies south, goes back north, and it's just, just totally normal. Yeah, otherwise you'd have sort of an F-15 off your wingtip wondering what you're doing there, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like I just finally got around to printing intercept orders and taping them into my logbook. Just, <laughs> that's right. Just in case it happens. That's, that's yeah. right. Most of us have those in our, our, our cockpit somewhere, but you actually actually run the chance of that happening at some point. Exactly. And like if I had a major electrical failure and the transponder goes dark and the radio goes dark, there's a real chance that I could be I could be intercepted. Right. And yeah, you know, it makes me think about maybe I need to fly with a handheld when yeah. I'm down over the U.S. Maybe yeah. a backup. Listen, Chester, what uh, what's in the future? Do you have any other flights planned or hoping to break any other other records? What what are you thinking about in the in the coming year or so? I mean, I'm looking at push further north. I don't think that I can head much south of Helena, that you know, in, in Montana, mm-hmm. without landing and clearing customs. So I'm planning on doing a flight where I land in Helena and stay overnight and then go on south and explore the wave down as far south as the the Tetons. 
Is that, well, you just... really can do things like that with a self-launching motor glider. What a, what a fabulous uh, adventure to be had when you have that uh, capability. I, I dream of just going on safari across the United States where you're just going from airstrip to airstrip and hopefully landing, uh, you know, in gliding clubs where possible and camp out. And I did this a couple of times this summer and, and landed at the, the bush strips that are abandoned and maintained by local flying clubs up there and stayed overnight and then took off the next morning, camped out. You, you, you fly so, with a tent in your glider? No. Uh, well, at that point, I was planning on staying overnight, so I was flying tent. Ha, huh, really? And, the Arcus has, yeah. oh, of course, sorry, two seats, so you're flying by yourself. You put the uh, stuff in the back seat. Exactly. My wife likes camping and mountain climbing, so I think it would be fairly easy to convince her, but with two people, it would be more of a challenge to right. to, to have a camping kit in there, but, but I definitely want to do it. In terms of wave flying, the major unexplored terrain is is heading further north, because I, I think there is... Well, I'm sure that there's wave terrain all the way up to the about 100 clicks this side of the Northwest Territories border. So, and in order to do that, you know, I need to go find airstrips all the way up, way, way north, like go up the Alaska Highway and check the condition of those airstrips. So there's there's a lot of wave flying left to do, and in the winter, the lakes in the mountains open up as being a potential land out. So. There's a possibility of doing flights which would be totally irresponsible in the summer and going wave flying you know, 100 kilometers into the mountains and potentially heading, heading far, far north up in the mountains in winter. Right. That makes complete sense. Hoping, of course, that you never have to land out because you've got a safe spot, but then you'd have the, uh, the extreme cold to deal with. In a glider, I'm already sitting in minus 25 in winter wave conditions all day. Mm -hmm. and, and in order to keep the windows from frosting up, you have to keep the ventilation just roaring all the time right wow so so if you were going to land out you'd want to be prepared for that but you're you're already pretty heavily dressed but i, I do think that getting the glider off of some frozen lake in jasper national park may not be such an easy such yeah. an easy thing at the end of one of your long flights you've touched down what does it feel like once you've uh, rolled to a stop uh, it's it's such a such a dream to be able to to be able to fly these kind of flights. When I got into gliding, I just wondered, you know, if this kind of thing was possible. It turns out that it is, and actually, it's kind of common. Well, Chester, it's been a, a pleasure speaking with you. I'll be following your uh, your flights on on the OLC, and I'll also put some links up to the for the listeners to be able to go on uh, to uh, to see some of your flights. Uh, they're really impressive, and uh, I'll be looking forward to following you in the future. So thanks again for, for speaking to me on the thermal. All right. Well, thanks for the call, Harry, and I'll talk to you later. Chester Fitchett spoke to me from Calgary, Alberta. After we spoke, Chester emailed me the following note. In our interview, I think I missed talking about the extreme variability of wave. Conditions vary from a weak 100-foot-per-minute wave in the blue that can only be located by looking at the netto, and then once found, you can cautiously feel your way home by maintaining the distance from the front ranges of the mountains. At the opposite extreme, the air mass around you is traveling east at 130 kilometers an hour. The cloud, two miles to the west, is plunging at 2,500 feet per minute, and the cloud to your east is being created just as fast. If you attempt a 360-degree turn, you will be immediately in IMC conditions in the worst rotor imaginable. 
and you're flying at 115 knots true airspeed with full spoilers. I don't know about you, but that sounds just a bit terrifying. Unless you really know what you're doing, which Chester certainly does. Now a quick note about our sponsor Fox One Corporation, the place to go for all your gliding avionics, instrumentation and software needs. Dave Springford is the man behind Fox One Corp, he's a world class competition pilot and knows what he's talking about. So get in touch with him at foxonecorp.com and talk to him about your gliding needs. That's foxonecorp, all one word, dot com. This month on her new segment, Gliding Club Confidential, we go to Argentina and Club de Panures Azul. Carlos Succi is a longtime member and the club class winner of this year's Pan American Gliding Championships. I've reached Carlos in Buenos Aires. So Carlos, talk to me about your gliding club and uh, the location. Where is it? Okay, Harry. My club, uh, the name of my club is Club de Planeadores Azul or Asociación Aeronáutica Azul, which is located in Azul City which is 300 kilometers to the west of Buenos Aires city. Uh, this is in the middle of the Buenos Aires province. And what's the local geography like? What are the flying conditions? Are we talking thermals? Are we talking wave? What do you do? Yeah, the, the land uh, in this area is totally flat. and We have only thermal conditions here. There no waves. And what about your, your airfield itself? Talk to me about the, the runways. Is it grass? Do you have any asphalt? What is it like? Yeah, we have two big runways. We have uh, one north-south of 1,500 meters, and the other is 900 meters, which is uh, east-west or orientation location, with uh, grass, both grass. And your club itself, do you have hangars, a clubhouse? Give me a sense of what the place is like. Yeah, we have a really nice club. I think we have one of the top three clubs in, in Argentina due to in this uh, location. Also, all, all the all the equipment we have. Uh, we have a nice swimming pool. We have a clubhouse. We have a, a bar, and we have three hangars uh, with the gliders. Uh, most of the gliders uh, are from the club. We have only a couple of private gliders in in, in our in our field. But the rest are gliding club. Uh, are gliders from the club, and we have around eight gliders. Now, did I hear you say swimming pool? Yes, sir. Boy, that's Amazing always a controversy at gliding clubs. <laughs> yeah, but also, uh, you know, we have around active pilots. We have around forty in my club, but we have uh, uh, around. 200 members in the club, but most of them, they come to the swimming pool in some time and not go to fly. They even don't know how, how, how it works, the flying activity. They only came to the swimming pool. So do they subsidize your flying in any way? Sorry? Do I they subsidize by being members of the club and only swimming? Does that help you with subsidizing yeah. the tow planes and that kind of thing? Yes, 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 totally. It huh. helps. We make a lot of money of this also. <laughs> Interesting idea. So talk to me about the aircraft. What kind of gliders does your club operate and what kind of tow planes? Yeah, for the school we have a Puhat and a K7. And then we have an LS1. We have also a Astil Club, 
two yantas, one yanta two and one yanta three. We have a few 75 and uh, ASW 20. We have one. And from the private side, we have another ASW 20. And the tow planes? And the tow planes, we have two. We have a Pawnee 180 for Stowers, and we have a PA 12. We have 150. Oh. That works quite good for our area. And what about your annual fees to be a member of this club? What, what uh, does it roughly cost to fly there in a season? Yeah, this is uh, quite interesting because it's not so expensive. We, we pay the, every tow, we pay around 20 US dollar. And the membership will cost around 50 US dollar per year, which is not quite, quite expensive. We pay also an annual fee for maintenance, and this will cost around 100 US dollar per year. Sounds very reasonable. Yes. So my last question, can guests come and fly at your location? Yes, of course. We do several activities with the community. We invite people to make the, the first flight in our club. We make it, make it uh, maybe three, four times per year. And a lot of people come to our club to fly and try what, what it's throwing about. And and this also works to to get new people to do to do the to the to the course of gliding pilot. Also, right. it's, it's one of instrument, one of the tools we are using to get new people in the, in our club. Would it be possible for a foreign pilot to come to your club and get a check riding and fly a glider? I think today we 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 never have this chance to do because we we have no possibilities to. Uh, that people from abroad come to our club to fly. But if you come, let's try it. I think it's not a, a big issue to organize this. And would the uh, visiting pilots need to be able to speak Spanish? Ah, I, I guess yes. Normally, should be work like this. But honestly, I have to be to say that it's not. It's, I never heard about it. If they have problems or not. Okay. I know that the pub, the people that come to fly from the last Panam that was done in near our club, uh, uh, the same institution as Trumpers Canada uh, helped the people from Canada and the U.S. to solve these issues about uh, idiomatic questions, and they have no problem to fly here in Argentina. Excellent. Well, Carlos, thank you very much for telling me about your gliding club, and I hope to visit one day. Okay. We invite you all to come to Argentina to fly, also to visit and have some nice wines also. <laughs> that sounds like an excellent idea. Okay, Carlos, take care. <laughs> okay, see you, Harry. Carlos Ucci spoke to me from Buenos Aires, Argentina. The link to Club de Paneros will be up on the Thermal Podcast's Facebook page. Summer. Whether you're in the northern or southern hemispheres, is the time for contest flying, and between regional, national, and international competitions, there are a lot of contests. But those contests wouldn't happen if there wasn't a dedicated and hard-working team making sure the contest is run smoothly and safely. The job of contest director, or CD, is critical. Ken Sorensen is past chairman of the Soaring Association of America, and he also competed on the U.S. World Team in Sweden in 1993. This summer, Ken drove all the way from Texas to Rockton, Ontario, and the Sosa Gliding Club. 
There, he was the contest director for the Pan Am Gliding Championships. Ken is now back home in Houston, Texas, which is where I've reached him. Good morning. So be, before we talk about your work as a contest director, I understand you just competed in your regional contest. How did that go? Uh, went well. Uh, we had uh, good weather, flew five out of six days. Uh, I wasn't able to fly <clears throat> the first day, so I didn't appear very well on the score sheet. But the big uh, news for me was that uh, I had uh, two of my uh, sons flying in the contest. One was flying in the FAI class, and the other one was flying in our sports class, and they each won their respective classes. So uh, no- nothing could make a a pilot happier than to be be- beaten by his son and to have both sons win their classes. Well, that's fantastic. And and what were you guys flying? Yeah, I've got a Ventus 3 FES. Uh, my uh, son in the FAI class is flying an LS4, and my son in the sports class is flying an ASW24. Nice. And it, it, it must be a fun contest when you guys can hang out together as well. It is, it is. We had them uh, staying at our house, so we got to fly during the day and uh, debrief debrief in the evening, so it was perfect. Good. Now, you were recently the, the contest director for the Pan Am Gliding Championships in Canada. I want to talk a little bit more about the job of CD. So what do you actually do? Well, at, the, uh, at an international contest like the Pan Ams, the CD has overall responsibility for the competition, so uh, I had responsibility for the, the tasking and then the overall operations of the, of the contest. I had great help with the tasking. The contest site was up near Toronto, as you know, and uh, the, the, the contest task area there is uh, technically it's on a peninsula, but from a geographical standpoint, soaring standpoint, it's essentially an island, a piece of land that's we had uh, lakes on almost all sides except to the northeast where we had uh, Toronto. And I had two uh, local advisors, uh, Ed Hollistell and Tom Colson, who are local pilots, very experienced in the area, and so they could help uh, me understand better what the local uh, weather was. So, so run me through a typical contest day. You wake up, you, you speak to your fellow directors. How do you plan out your day? How does that work? Well, we had we had a uh, a weather person who was helping us um, with the uh, with the with the weather, but even when I'm getting help from from professionals, I like to do my own weather. So I get up early in the morning and start looking at the local forecast and the soaring forecast and try to get a handle on what the weather was going to be like. And then at about uh, nine o'clock, we would uh, the task advisors uh, would get together and we would. Uh, uh, put together a task, and the the key things that we were looking for in setting the task at a contest like this was uh, what time the so- what time is the soaring going to begin? So how early can we start the launch? Uh, what time is the soaring going to end? So how long can we keep them out there on task? Uh, what kind of speeds will we expect? Because that that will determine if we know the the length of the day and the speeds, we can set a task length. And then finally, where do we send them? So there may be uh, some areas of the task area which are affected by um, lake effects or strong areas, weak areas. So with the beginning, the end, the speed, and the uh, length of the task, um, or where we send them, that pretty much defines the task. And 
for the Pan Am Championships, how challenging was that for you to to define the task and get your head around the, the local soaring conditions? I mean, you come from a place where you probably have huge tasks and great altitudes, and it's a bit different in this part of the world. Well, it, it was it was uh, challenging. It was uh, w- one of the things that made made it challenging was that we set out. I mean, one of my goals in uh, in being the CD at this contest was to create a contest environment which uh, simulated as close as possible a world championships, which I had been CD at the world championships here in uh, Uvalde, Texas, in 2012, and uh, Typically, contests in the U.S. and in Canada aren't as uh, strenuous for the pilots as uh, as the World Championships. The tasking isn't quite as severe, and the rules are a little bit different. The international rules are not the same as those used in Canada and uh, the U.S. So what I wanted to do was to create a contest environment that was as close to a world as we could, and so that meant using the international rules, which some additional quirks in terms of starts and finishes and scoring. But then also the task um, length and type. There are two basic types of tasks at the internationals. They call them racing tasks or assigned area tasks. And the racing tasks, the, the contestants, the pilots, are must go to uh, points, typically two or three or four points, uh, around the task area, and those points are defined by a half a kilometer radius, and they have to go to the points in sequence, uh, as opposed to an area task where there are also points, but these times in the area task, the points are surrounded by a large uh, a large area, uh, anywhere from 10 to 30 kilometer area, and you get to pick where in that area you go. So on the area tasks, if the weather's variable or the <clears throat> the pilots uh, have different ideas about how to fly the task, they can choose where they go. On a racing task, they can't. They have pretty much have to go to the points. From a tasking standpoint, it's much more difficult to assign good tasks that are racing tasks because you have to get the, you got to pick your points right if you happen to send everybody into an area where the weather isn't as good as you thought it was going to be. You can land the whole fleet out uh, because they don't find lift and can't make it around the task, and you don't really want that. But at the international tasking, at the international racing level, that happens quite often. And so we were trying to set tasks that would challenge the pilots, and if they landed out, that's just the way it goes. Um, but we weren't deliberately trying to land them out, but on the other hand, we were willing to let them land out. So overall, were you pretty happy with the, the tasks that you set, whether they were racing tasks or the uh, area tasks? Yes. I, it worked out just almost perfectly. At the uh, last several years of world championships, the ratio of racing tasks to area tasks has been two-thirds racing tasks, one-third area tasks, which is totally different from the U.S. and Canadian contests, which are almost uh, recently have been almost all area tasks. Hmm. And we managed to get in. We uh, flew nine out of 12 uh, available contest days, and six of the days were racing tasks and three were area tasks, so we got the percentage just right. And another test that I was trying to, to 
to uh, another measure, metric I was trying for, was to have tasks difficult enough that we were having a significant number of landouts. Because that, if you're not getting any landouts, it means that the tasks probably are not challenging enough. Hmm. And uh, in fact, at the end, by the end of the contest, we I, I tallied up the total number of landouts or failures to get away on difficult days, and we had almost 25 percent of the of the possible task completions were uh, were were not completed. So right. We had so in the end, you're saying you don't you don't want to make it too easy. It's got to be a challenge. Got to be a challenge, and uh, the uh, philosophy that I had in setting the tasks was that uh, was and this is a bit harsh, but if if at least one pilot can make it around the task in each class on a on a given day, then the task was doable. Yeah. And those 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 that didn't make it around were either less skilled or perhaps less lucky, but uh, we wanted difficult tasks, and hmm. we had landouts on uh, every day. Now, I, I imagine the job of CD can be a bit stressful if you've got a bunch of landouts, you don't know where all the pilots are, you know, phone calls aren't happening. How do you handle the stress of the job? Well, it actually isn't that, that stressful. The, the, one of the nice things about the, the, uh, this couple things, one is that the International Contest organiza- Organization is such that each, the pilots are members of, of Teams. Uh, we had Canadian, Argentinian, and U.S. teams. Each team has a team captain, and with regard to landouts, it's actually the responsibility of the team captains to sort out the landouts. Uh, the organizers help, but it's really the team captain's responsibility. So part of the burden shifts to the team captains, which offloads the organizers. Right. But from our standpoint, the key thing was that we had a really good organizing team and so the the local people at SOSA, the, the uh, club that hosted the contest, were so good and so strong in terms of their organizational skills that I was able to pretty much uh, not worry about that aspect of the flying. Right. But it, whether you're a CD at the Pan Ams or the Worlds or anywhere like that, part of it is it's overall flight safety, making sure all the pilots are okay, and if you're the guy in charge, somewhere in the back of your mind, you're probably always thinking about that. Well, we, we are, and the, the, you know, for instance, when we set the tasks with the multiple classes, one of the considerations is that you want all of the pilots to be flying in basically the same direction. So they may not all be on the same task, but you want the tasks to circulate in the same pattern so that you don't have pilots meeting each other head-on or crossing paths unnecessarily. So we worked hard every day to get the tasks right. Uh, Fortunately, the terrain in this this task area is very landable, so there's lots of fields, so it's it's not uh, like a mountainous site or a desert site where you have to worry more about the landability of the terrain. So and we had top pilots. So we got good pilots. Uh, you know, we had careful task setting and good terrain and uh, good organizers. And so all of that combined to have a safe contest. We didn't have a single damaged airplane at the contest. Uh, and of course, nobody was nobody was hurt. So yep. it was a very safe, very successful contest. Ken, what do you like about being contest director? 
Well, it's it's a challenge, and I guess that's and it's uh, it's a challenge to get all the pieces moving in the right direction and to make it challenging for the pilots. Um, the biggest fun factor for me, I guess, is the people. Um, I really these the pilots that we were flying in the contest. Many of those pilots I have known for many years as a fellow contestant. Uh, so they're all friends, and uh, we've met a lot of new friends and met uh, friends at SOSA at the club. Uh, and uh, so it's, from my standpoint, it's a challenge, and it's about the people. Now, Ken, you're past chair of the Soaring Association of America. You've competed at the international level. You've got a huge flying resume. What keeps you so passionate about the sport of gliding? Well, it's... Uh, Several things, I guess. Uh, one is, is as I said, the people. Um, I, we have most of our family friends now. Uh, we've been doing this for a long time. Our uh, contest pilots or fellow contest pilots or, or crews, and we have friends. My wife and I have friends uh, and kids have friends from all over the world and all over the country that we've met through soaring. The soaring community is is. There's both good news and bad news. The good news is that it's uh, small, so you get to know everybody. Uh, bad news is that it's small and <laughs> sport yeah. needs yeah. to grow. So one of the things I've been trying to do in my SSA role is to try to grow the sport so that we don't uh, our sport doesn't shrink. But from a personal standpoint, what I really enjoy, um, besides just the social interaction, is the challenge of the cross-country soaring of, mm -hmm. uh, of a glider. It's, to me, it's just it's uh, it's very difficult to do this well and and uh, at a high level of competition. And all the competitors have been getting better and better and better over the years. And the uh, it's it's just you're making a lot of decisions when you're flying. There's I mean there's the basic flying skills which all of the top competitors have, just being able to fly the glider and make it do what you want it to do. But one of the key things is is developing the skill of making decisions with inadequate information. Um, I, what I've noticed in in real life, rest of the, in the real world, is that people who are successful oftentimes are very good at being able to make good decisions with inadequate information, and that. That life skill is very important with regard to being a top competition pilot. Mm -hmm. You can, you never have all the information that you want to have about, you know, do I go to this cloud or that cloud? Do I fly fast? Do I fly slow? Do I stop for this thermal? Do I not? Um, which route do I take? Uh, it's there's just if you're not making a decision when you're flying uh, in a cross country flight, if you're not making a decision once every probably five to ten seconds, then you're, you know, you're not on your game. So there's a lot of decisions, and, uh, and it's just it's challenging and it's fun. When you do it right, it's, uh, it's extremely rewarding, and when you don't do it right, you think, well, I'll, I'll do better next time. Are you going to be flying this week? Uh, probably so, yeah. It turns out that I live uh, at the end of my glider club in uh, Houston on the glider club property, and so if there's a, a tow plane uh, available, I'll, I'll normally take a tow. My, my 
philosophy at this stage in life is if I, if I can get a toe, I'll take it. <laughs> Fantastic. That sounds great. Well, Ken, listen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about the, the role of contest director and, and how that all fits together and safe flying, and uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Well, thank you, and thank you for doing this uh, podcast series. The more we can do to get the word out about how great soaring is, the better. Thanks, Ken. Take care. Okay, bye. Ken Sorensen spoke to me from Houston, Texas. Well, that's it for episode number five of the Thermal Podcast. I now have invitations to drink wine in Argentina and devour a big steak in Texas. I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. I hope you've enjoyed the interviews and please tune in again to the podcast in November for episode number six. I try to upload a new show before the first Saturday of every month. If you have any good interview ideas, please let me know. I can be reached at the Thermal Podcast, all one word, at gmail.com. That's the Thermal Podcast at gmail.com. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. Thanks for listening to edition number five of The Thermal.